Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I'm talking to Troy Vitesi and Drew Pendergrass about their book Half Earth Socialism. We talk about potential futures that might emerge from current discussions around geoengineering and the impact that might have on the earth systems, as well as how those solutions fit within the liberal imaginary and how we can start to build movements that will allow us to develop democratic solutions to climate breakdown that reorient production towards the social good rather than private profit. So this is a great episode um, and it also links up to some of the themes that I'll be exploring in my own book that will be coming out next year. Um, So if you like the episode, please do share it across social media. Um, You know where to find us. We are at A World to Win Pod. And please do consider supporting us on Patreon. We love all of our patrons and we really need them. Um, So we are at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. Now a word from our sponsor and then straight into the episode. This episode of A World to Win is brought to you by The Left Book Club. The Left Book Club is a not-for-profit subscription book club. It's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore radical alternatives to the current crises of capitalism. I personally am a subscriber and I really love having the diversity of books uh, that come through my letterbox um, because it really just encourages me to kind of read outside of genres that I would usually go for. So I would really encourage listeners to sign up. Every book is printed in a unique edition and you can choose between six or 12 books a year. Plus there are author events and discounts from publishers, including Pluto Press and Tribune Magazine. A World to Win listeners can get their first month subscription for free by going to leftbookclub.com slash member and using the code WINFREE. That's WINFREE all in caps at the checkout. Hello, I am here with Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vitese, authors of Half Earth Socialism, which is the book that we are going to be talking about today. How are you guys both doing? Great. We're good. Thanks for having us. Good. Thank you for coming on the show. So really like the book. Um, And one of the great things about the book is the opening, where you kind of paint this like um, really vivid dystopian future that we might have under kind of uh, existing proposals for geoengineering. Tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to start the book by painting this kind of horrific story that we might end up seeing over the coming years if we don't start pushing back against these kind of uh, state-led proposals for radical interventions in our climate systems. Uh, I'll speak a little bit and then I'll let Drew talk because he's the scientist who knows a lot more about geoengineering than I do. But I think it's funny that you think it's a very dystopian future because we definitely don't agree with it. But we we're trying very hard to make it seem realistic and I'm based really on... I'm my, uh, my political sensibilities get in the way of the analysis. <laughs> then, no, it no. terrifying to me. <laughs> no, no. But what, what we try to do is we say, okay, what's going to happen in the next 25 years? Right. So 2047 is the date we set, which is also the you know, century anniversary of the founding of the neoliberal movement. Um, and we are trying to be kind to mainstream environmentalists. Right. We're saying, OK, they, you know, lots of green parties take power over the next decade or so and they can implement their you know, supposed solutions such as you know, cap and trade programs or encouraging uh, electric vehicles and all that, and they're able to achieve some real successes. And we use some scenario planning uh, 
uh, even from oil companies and, and, and other sources. And what's funny is that uh, these sources, they say, okay, even if there's a lot of renewable energy uh, that's being deployed and there's tons of electric vehicles and there's you know, a doubling of the energy efficiency gains that we see you know, compared to the, the past 10 years or so, even if all those things happen, which would be real achievements, right? There's still no way we are going to actually uh, put a stop to carbon emissions and then the world will heat up and then some very bad things will probably happen. One being uh, a resort to geoengineering, which is a very risky technology, which I'm sure Drew wants to jump in about and, and talk to, to us about that. And then the other thing would be uh, other important risks, because in the book we say, you know, climate change matters, but there's many other environmental problems we have to worry about. I think uh, the COVID-19 pandemic made that clear. So we even predict, you know, another big pandemic might happen, such as avian flu, which has been predicted for a, a long time, which could kill a lot of people. And so all these other bad things happen. So even if we, you know, moderates or mainstream proposals are accepted and implemented, they won't be enough, right? And and then the question becomes, well, then what, what should we do instead? And that's why we wrote the book. Yeah, I'll just add a little bit on that about, um, about solar geoengineering, which um, Troy mentioned. This is sort of what we think is is a plausible um, thing that will happen in the, in the near term uh, as a response to climate change. Not so much things get really hot, but... Uh, uh, you know, we enact this sort of cheap climate, you know, quote unquote solution where we fly planes up in the stratosphere, spray some sulfur, the sulfur forms particles that block some solar radiation, uh, cooling the planet. Uh, this is a proposal that's very serious. Um, if people have read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, that's also how he opens his book. Um, uh, it's a uh, and it's interesting that Troy said that as someone who does science, that I would have something to say about solar geoengineering. But the truth is that no one really knows what will happen if we do solar geoengineering. It's not the sort of thing that you can really study because the climate system is very complex. Uh, we just don't know what will happen. We include in the book some some possible things that have been discussed in the literature, but but we don't really know. Um, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's highly risky and it's it's. It's, it's a terrifying proposition. And what about carbon capture and storage? Because this is another technology that is kind of supposed to, um, you know, be, that we should be able to deploy according to some scientists when, and it does look like when now we reach the point where we are very much over that 1.5 degree, uh, we've run out of carbon budget to hit that 1.5 degree target maybe even running out of carbon budget to hit that two degree target, they're saying, oh, actually it doesn't matter because we can do solar, we can do geoengineering and also we can do carbon capture and storage. What is the the downside or the problems associated with that technology? Well, I think uh, there will probably be a role for carbon capture and storage in, in the future. The idea is that, um, and there are, many, there are several different kind of versions of this, but the, the general idea is you capture carbon dioxide and then you condense it and then you bury it underground, sort of like reverse mining for fossil fuels. There are various ways this technology could work. The easiest thing you could do is put it on a, you know, some sort of fossil fuel using a power plant or, um, you know, steel production, capture the carbon emissions and then bury it. That's nice because there's higher concentrations of carbon dioxide and then you have, it's easier thermodynamically to capture it. Um, there's direct air capture where you have like kind of metal trees um, that, uh, you know, artificially capture carbon from the ambient atmosphere in Barrett. There was a new one of these that was developed uh, and deployed in Iceland. And then there's a technology that we talk about in detail in the book, um, 
which is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is a proposed uh, negative emissions technology um, that shows up all over the place in um, UN climate models. Um, the idea is that you grow massive plantations of trees, you cut down the trees, uh, which grow, uh, absorb carbon as they grow, you burn the trees, you capture the carbon as you burn it, and then you bury that carbon underground. The idea is that this is negative emissions because the trees are capturing carbon and then you burn them and capture that carbon and bury it. Um, and then a lot of the IPCC intergovernmental panel on climate change models, you know, these plantations of trees take up, you know, over the land of India, like um, uh, to uh, to help do our negative emissions and make the models work that we can keep climate change to 1.5 or 2 degrees. So while there is a role for car carbon capture and storage, it's important to remember that the technology is not very mature. Um, it's very expensive. Um, and, uh, and in the case of BECS, right, where you want really big negative emissions, it requires a lot of land. Or in the case of direct air capture, it requires a lot of energy. And all these sorts of calculuses make it that it won't be able to play maybe the huge role that, um, that it sometimes does in models. Um, Troy, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I think you covered a lot of ground, but I would say that it's strange. I think we're not having honest discussions about climate change and what we're going to do with climate change. Because I think uh, carbon capture has been discussed for a long time. Like I remember when David Cameron came to power in the UK and he said, oh, we'll set up like a billion pound fund for, for research on this. And then after about a year that, that wound up and nothing happened. And the idea, you know, and this happens in the US as well, like we want clean coal and then blah, blah, blah. And, and it's, it's a useful rhetorical, you know, trick in a way to say we'll have carbon capture. Um, but no one ever wants, no one wants to spend the money on it because it is very expensive. I mean, there are estimates saying you need around $200 a ton for, for carbon to make, to break even on this stuff. And right now it's, you know, the price for carbon is much lower. So no one wants to invest in it. And the, um, places that they do have it, cause there are some projects that exist, they capture the CO2 and then they use it to re-inject it into like oil deposits, push out more oil called the enhanced oil recovery, right? So actually there are very few projects where they actually plan to really properly sequester that carbon. I think even for some of these direct air capture uh, startups, they actually want to sell the CO2 as like a clean fuel for, for airplanes and all that, right? A guilt-free version. But of course, if you're re-emitting it, then it's not doing much good. So um, my point is that it's, it's really a smokescreen for what's actually going to happen. We both think that uh, because it's so expensive, no one wants to invest in it, and therefore they're going to do geoengineering, as in like the solar radiation management, which only will cost around a billion or two billion dollars a year, which is nothing. It's just total peanuts compared to the massive infrastructure you would need for for CCS. And then Bex is really like a something that you know we're trying to stress is really created by the models themselves, right? Like no one is really saying that Bex um, are a solution or it should be taken seriously and we need to ramp up you know research and uh, build out of these technologies if they emerge because modders, modelers want to make their models work mm. and, and later no we can talk about the idea of like pseudo rationality but the idea is if you're trying to focus on a single metric then you're going to end up with really weird outcomes uh, and that's an example of that so we need to have a, a more honest conversation about how we're going to deal with the climate crisis along with other problems uh, involved in the environmental crisis. 
Yeah, I mean, both of these technologies are kind of examples of what I called in my first book, speaking actually about some kind of economic policies, um, like technocratic solutionism. And the idea is that you've kind of found this amazing uh, technological or scientific or policy breakthrough that if implemented and if you can kind of just build a, a strong enough coalition to force the state to do these things, then it will solve all the world's problems. And rather than being seen as um, a, a kind of t- a technology that can be deployed politically, it's seen as a way of kind of getting over politics of being like, we don't have to worry about like political issues about the distribution of resources because we can just solve everything using science and facts. I mean, I, I agree uh, with you to some extent, and it'd be interesting to see where we, we disagree, where I think uh, certain groups such as, you know, scientists who are pushing for these BECs or maybe mainstream environmentalists such as Hansen or, or Mombio who say nuclear power is the solution. I think they are technocratic, right? I think they are trying, they think that politics is too difficult when it's too confrontational and therefore they have trouble mobilizing people and they don't want to upset elites and they will find a, a technical solution to these big problems. And I think, you know, these, because they don't have any coalition or political power, these will be defeated because they're very expensive solutions, right? And, but then I would say neoliberals are, are strange because they're not technocrats, right? I mean, like their whole philosophy is predicated on the idea that people are, are ignorant and foolish and they don't know anything. And only this collective intelligence of the market is what matters. And for a neoliberal, they don't really care you know, which technology emerges, uh, which one wins out? Because again, they're, they're, they don't like science. They don't think science is like a, a competitor to the market in terms of producing uh, knowledge. And as long as the market is protected, they don't really care what happens to the natural world or to how we live our lives and, and all that. So uh, if anything, it's amazing how like slapdash their reactions are to this crisis is, you know, I mean, I didn't phrase it very well, but you know what I'm saying. So basically they spend like peanuts on geoengineering. Like there's like, there's very little money going on this, but they will say, well, entrepreneurs will solve this problem. It doesn't matter how. Yeah. That very much brings me on to the question that I was going to ask you next, which was um, a lot, you know, the significant parts of the book talk about um, the response from within neoliberalism to um, these crises and to the climate crisis and what that tells us about neoliberalism itself. And what's interesting there is that you have seen, and this is not an original thought, lots of people have commented on this, this divergence within neoliberal thought from, let's say, the kind of purist position of someone like Hayek, who was, you know, interested in science and in, you know, things like complex systems theory and was very willing to accept that the economy, that, you know, the planet, that whatever, that these things are complex systems, that as you say, it is very difficult or if not impossible for any one individual or group of individuals or institution to gain perfect knowledge of. And that's why the market is so important because it's this massive kind of decentralized information processing machine that allows us to coordinate across vast distances without any form of centralized authority. And to those people, things like geoengineering, where you're intervening in multiple different complex systems, both economic and environmental, in a way that is, as you say, untestable, because there are just so many variables at play, would be the ultimate cardinal sin. 
And yet there is this other version of neoliberalism of, let's say, actually existing neoliberalism. Um, so maybe, you know, that's the one that we should really look at because it's the one that's been implemented, which is much less skeptical about interventions, A, to shape the market, which Hayek is generally fine with, and B, interventions within the market that tend to promote the power of capital, because there's obviously this distinction between neoliberalism as an intellectual project and a class project. They're obviously, the distinction is probably a bit too far, but there are these two separate streams. Um, and those, you know, that, that kind of class project is generally fine, you know, give or take with interventions that are um, like centralized and led by the state, as long as they serve the interests of capital. So, you know, how do you think, let's start, how do you think that Hayek would have responded to something like geoengineering? I, I like this question. <laughs> this is this is excellent. Um, so, just to be clear, you know, this book is has emerged as a side project for both Drew and I. This is not what we do normally, right? Like, but I study uh, neoliberal environmental thought, and I'm writing a, a book on that, and that's what I did my my PhD on. And what's what's interesting when you study that is, as you're saying, I think there are plenty of neoliberals who did take science seriously. I mean, especially in earlier generations, like. Uh, Michael Polanyi himself was a scientist. Uh, Hayek came from a family of scientists. And they would have said, okay, we can have markets for everything, but science should not be commodified or marketized, right? And I think that, and you even see it with uh, people who um, devise a lot of the earlier uh, innovations in neoliberal environmental policy. The most important policy they have is cap and trade. So the idea that you you limit, uh, you create like a right to pollute or a right to cause environmental harm, and then you sell those rights, right? And then people trade for any set of price on it. And uh, the guy who came up with it was John Dales, and he he was a real nature lover. I mean, he was a huge bird watcher and all that. And uh, he recognized that for his scheme to work, it would have to cause real uh, real economic pain. Right. That's the only way it could work. Yeah, people they really had to constrain production and he was fine with that. Right. But I think later generations of neoliberals are much more cynical and for them, protecting the market is the most important thing. And I suppose also maintaining a class coalition with uh, you know, business people and, and other conservatives matters more than the environment. So they're quite willing to set up cap and trade programs that are doomed to fail because they will give out too many credits and the grandfather too many credits and so forth. They set the price too low, which has been, has been the problem in the, the EU, where the price for uh, a ton of carbon was like three euros for, for years, right? So it didn't do anything. And there's been plenty of studies that show that it did nothing to constrain carbon pollution. So you do have... And actually polluters were profiting from it in some Yeah, because they get, you know, basically a free right that they can sell, you know, so they're happy to have that, like a free, make a new kind of property. But it didn't really affect them because, yeah, three euros a ton is, is peanuts. And it, it translates to like a cent per like a liter of gasoline or whatever it is, right? And um, so I think we have two kinds of neoliberals, but generally the cynical ones that want to trash the environment are the stronger faction within neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. So how Hayek might have solved uh, global warming is not is not clear to me, but I think the neoliberals are, I mean, one thing we, I, mean, I, I want to stress, I mean, perhaps to your, to your listeners, is I think a lot of left-wing, you know, Types they they say oh neoliberalism is like a stupid ideology or they just are like you know, they believers of uh, 
you know, Adam Smith's Invisible Hand, and it's not, or they're just libertarians, they read Ayn Rand, and we don't have to take them seriously. I mean, I think, first of all, they have a complex intellectual system where they have lots of influences that they draw upon from the left and the right, and they're quite creative. And then they're also quite ruthless. I think something like a, like, like a bargain, or as in like, like a, a gamble that they're taking with geoengineering is crazy, right? I mean, they're basically saying we will risk, you know, gigantic catastrophes uh, in terms of like droughts or, you know, stopping the monsoon or, uh, you know, turning the sky white. And we don't even know what's going to happen. We're willing to do that because we believe in the market so much. We trust in the market so much. And I think the left doesn't have either, I suppose, a, a set of ideas that are as complex or creative in some ways. Uh, and they also don't have anything that is quite so... I mean, it's almost admire the ruthlessness. I mean, I don't want to sound uh, a bit too pro neoliberal here, but it's 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 just crazy what they're up to, and we have to take that seriously. I think we're not talking about that enough. We just heard a little bit there from Troy about um, the failure of attempts to um, basically, and you know, I don't want to use this phrase um, without some criticism, but use the market to solve climate breakdown because. You know, things like emissions trading schemes aren't using the market in any real sense. Um, they are constructing a new market in a situation where a market doesn't exist for a reason, because as many of these early theorists identified, property rights over, you know, like your lungs and the commons are badly defined. And that is always going to be the case just by virtue of the nature of the things that we're describing. Um, so creating a market is always going to be, you know, an exercise in planning of one form or another of kind of centralized planning um and is therefore often going to fail as we've seen it fail time and time again can you just talk a little bit about why most of these emissions trading schemes have failed so badly um and why kind of related things like policy ideas like carbon taxes um won't kind of go far enough to, um, yeah, give us the, the kind of change that we need? Well, uh, there are a bunch of reasons. I think Troy, Troy touched on a few. I mean, one is that uh, some of these trading schemes aren't actually designed to constrain production in a, in a profound sense. Um, uh, and the, the other thing is that um, uh, the scale of the energy transition, and now I'm just talking about the energy transition. I'm not talking about the stuff required to help biodiversity, those other things. It's We're talking total transformation of society. That's the sort of thing that requires some, some coordination, right? You need to build out just a huge new infrastructure for um, renewable energy generation. And, and you have to remember that our energy system took like 100 years or more to, to build. Um, you have to replace all that. You have to have new technologies to uh, handle the grid. You have to electrify things because, uh, you know, electricity generation is relatively easy to decarbonize because you have a few big power plants and then you can have big batteries like uh, uh, the most efficient battery we have right now is just pumping a bunch of water up the hill and then letting it come back down the hill later. And that's much easier to do on a grid. And you can't do that in your car, for example. So decarbonizing things like transportation and industry are really hard. Um, so that requires, uh, yeah, changing out all this infrastructure. It's just a lot to do. Like the to-do list is very long. And uh, the time it takes to do it is, is quite short. Um, and that sort of thing doesn't seem to really work with um, market coordination because it will be very expensive and it will require the destruction of a lot of profits, like trillions of dollars of oil left in the ground. You have to get rid of your fossil fuel infrastructure before its useful life ends. So all these pipelines, 
all this very expensive equipment has to just be abandoned. Um, it's just it's just expensive. Um, and if you estimate maybe the tax it would take to make that transition uh, economically irrational from a profit calculation perspective, you're looking at a very, very high carbon tax, which ends up um, just sort of who is the coalition that would do that? Because it would uh, it would hurt people who have to, you know, fill up their car to go to work. Right. Um, and it will hurt the capitalists. So it's just um, I don't know if I articulated that very clearly. It's just there's a lot of things that don't quite add up. Troy, I don't know if you you want to jump in here and help out. <laughs> I, I, first of all, I would disagree with characterizing uh, these kind of carbon markets and other kinds of you know eco restoration markets as planning. I think the neoliberals they're quite clear that they're not laissez-faire liberals. They don't really believe that markets will spontaneously emerge, although they, they that's part of their rhetoric, especially for Hayek. But they recognize that you need a strong state to create and protect markets. And they realize that, um, you know, creating a, a market is, is a political project. But once you create it, um, it, things can happen that not even they could expect. And they're quite fine with that. I mean, for example, you, once you have like a, a carbon market, all these weird things emerged. For example, Beck's emerged because uh, there was, I believe, a Swedish grad student. He was saying, well, how can we get carbon credits for uh, the forestry industry? And we can do that by having something like Beck's. Like, we'll grow lots of trees and then uh, burn them and then sequester it. And that's one way to do it. And they didn't see that coming, right? It's not like they're, you know, so in the, some neoliberal layer, they, they had foreseen that. They didn't. Or another example would be uh, someone else tried to get carbon credits through iron fertilization. This was Russ George in 2012 off the coast of British Columbia, Canada. And he just got a lot of paint, a lot of like, paint chips, and just dumped it in the ocean. And then he was hoping that would make uh, algae and that would then uh, create diatoms that use carbon and sink to the bottom of the ocean, that would sequester carbon. So my point is, these markets are unpredictable. And that's, for the neoliberal point of view, that's a strength, right? So because it creates, because no new actors will join in and create new kinds of products. And that's exactly what they, they want. The thing is that, um, you know, Drew was talking about the problem of profitability, right? So if you actually have a proper market, as I was saying before, it would constrain profitability for a lot of firms. So they never actually do that. They never set the price that high. Uh, I mean, or, or actually limit the, the credits, the price would be high. Uh, they set it low, but because it's low, it then leads to very cheap and risky solutions such as geoengineering. Um, so this, and then, and then... You know, some people, such as Philip Morawski, think this is all part of their plan, right? They want to buy time uh, by having denial, by denying there's climate change, although they, they're not stupid, they know there's climate change. Then they buy time by setting up these really bad markets that mainstream environmentalists and center-left you know, liberals will, will protect, uh, even though they're doomed to fail. And then eventually will run out of time, which is basically the situation we're in now. And people will say there's no time to... Uh, you know, change our infrastructure, or get rid of carbon. We have to do geoengineering, and we will trust these entrepreneurs who have been researching this. And that's exactly their their game plan. So I think it's a mix of some strategy, but also just the randomness of markets. That uh, that's what that's what's going on here. Yeah, it's interesting in many ways because you know 
the randomness of markets, to what extent can you really describe those markets as kind of anarchic in the sense that you might describe like the capitalist world system as a whole when they've been self-consciously constructed with certain interests in mind by certain interests and under the influence of, you know, actors that are going to act within that market. I guess my point is that there's a kind of, you know, a, a dichotomy here that has to be bridged between our understandings of like what's a free market and what's a planned system. And actually this comes on to, I think, something that I was going to ask next, which is we've seen lots of editorials now from like the Financial Times and The Economist saying, oh, we need central planning to tackle the climate crisis. And lots of people are looking at this and saying, oh, look, it's like, you know, the kind of financial press backing a move towards socialism. But, you know, just as like capitalism and free markets aren't synonymous, like state planning, centralized state planning and socialism aren't synonymous. And you can imagine a world in which um, we do get some form, we already have a lot of it, but we do get kind of even more extensive state planning of these systems and whether that looks like geoengineering or whether it looks like, you know, something else, the broader kind of um, determination of where resources are allocated by bureaucrats rather than, you know, an allegedly free market mechanism. And there are going to be people who are saying, well, that's socialism. And of course, it's it's not going to be socialism because it's going to be planning that's in the interests of capital. So how can we kind of start to try and move beyond this um, socialism is when the state does stuff and capitalism is when the market does stuff distinction? Right. I mean, this is a, this is a really great question. As Troy was pointing out, the neoliberals are not anti-state. They they want a strong state that can protect and form markets that can then do the information processing of running society, and then also planning. As as you point out, you know, it's in the Financial Times. It's in the Economist. Um, uh, in the nineteen fifties and sixties, planning um, was a big part of uh, of life. Uh, Gaullist France was uh, full of planners who were. Um, in dialogue with people in the Eastern Bloc, thinking about um, thinking about planning in that way in the interests of of capital, um, so it's certainly not synonymous with socialism, um, and it's certainly not antithetical to capitalism. Uh, so this is this is a, a really good point. First of all, I'm skeptical when people say, "Oh, we need central planning," and whether it would actually lead to anything that matters. I think maybe we'll see something like a Norwegian solution where they'll give some subsidies for people to buy uh, electric cars or something like that. Uh, or maybe we'll see some like a Pagovian, you know, like feed-in tariff kind of uh, approach here and there. But it won't it won't be a proper like war economy <laughs> where everything is being planned and profit doesn't matter. I don't think we're going to get to that situation. I think we're very far from that. If anything, maybe this rhetoric that comes even from like the center right, such as you know the economists, um, maybe they're thinking in terms of you know Mark Carney's solution of uh, using central plan uh, oh, sorry uh, central banks. Um, but it's not going to be what we actually need because they, they're not imagining a break with, with capitalism. Like they haven't been radicalized in that respect. I think it's just, it's like CCS. It's like carbon capture and sequestration where uh, it sounds good and it will then fill up the public sphere, but they won't actually act. So I, I'm skeptical. Uh, in terms of what is the difference, I mean, between capitalism and Know, planning. I think it would be so great if we could return to, let's say, mid-century uh, Keynesianism 
which is been, has been the position for a lot of left-wing parties. Um, but the conditions for such a political economy don't exist anymore, right? And I, I, we won't have the high growth rates. We don't have limits on globalization uh, the way we did back then. So I, I think this is yeah not, not a real debate. And in terms of um, what we could be doing is, and what we're proposing in the book is, we have to have an economy that does not uh, justify investment based on profitability. And we need a, an economy that collectivizes the decision of investment. And uh, so I think, you know, in previous, you know, as you're saying, like in a Keynesian or uh, or what Drew was saying, but 1960s France, I mean, you had a, a large state sector that did planning, and then you had uh, a rest of the, the rest of the economy that had to produce at, uh, at the going rate of profit, right? And we're saying we need to break with that as well. So like a totally socialized economy. And how do you actually achieve that is a big part of our, our project. And we're trying to imagine um, a society where we're using certain kinds of planning tools. And in the book, we go through a history of, of planning theory and, and look at uh, what are maybe some useful approaches. Um, and then we want to imagine a series of total plans about how we can uh, achieve certain goals in terms of living standards and environmental uh, remediation uh, that we can agree on. And in, we call it the book Half of Socialism because we think we need to have a huge change in terms of how we actually manage our interchange with nature and rewild a huge part of the world. Uh, we need to give up meat and we need to reduce energy consumption in the global north. These are all important things, but they're not uh, picked at random. Right. I mean, we're trying to say planning brings all these things together within a single frame and then we decide upon that. And this is not based on the profitability of, of these goals. If that, so that's, that's, kind of, that's like basically the bet of the book. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it really builds on um, a history of democratic planning for social good as opposed to private planning for profit that exists all around the world, but I mean, um, particularly in some parts of the European left from when the labor movement was much stronger. So the most famous example is the Lucas plan when workers at Lucas Aerospace came together and decided we don't want to produce weapons anymore. We're actually going to organize workers. Well, they were already organized, but we're going to bring workers together to develop a kind of, um, you know, a democratic plan for using these resources differently um, to produce things that we actually need. And that was kind of, a t there, was a, there were attempts to scale that up just at the moment before the neoliberal turn. And that, of course, is not a coincidence because the neoliberal time was just as much just as much about kind of disciplining these attempts to democratize and socialize resources as it was about you know whatever they said tame, taming inflation or you know um yeah like dealing with kind of macroeconomic challenges um so i'm wondering what the kind of constituency today you think can be behind um this pretty ambitious set of proposals to develop plans that aren't just going to be plans that are developed by like, uh, you know, a coalition of kind of bureaucrats and capitalists, which is what we have today, but which can actually be based on some sort of, you know, counterforce that can really push for 
democratic planning for for public good what's the what's the coalition there and how do we start building it it's a big question but i'm sure you both have thoughts <laughs> right well we'll we'll start on an answer to this but this is a this is a question that we all should be thinking about it's not one that we have all the answers to to, to us socialism is about kind of conscious and democratic decisions about uh, the economy and and how we want it to run in a way that works for for us uh, and for everyone um, and one of the tensions that we get out of the book is that the environmental crisis sort of demands hard choices that require us to think kind of in a more holistic way. So, for example, you know, what sort of um, uh, kind of uh, material metabolism should the economy have? Like, how much should we be extracting from nature? How much land should we have in the agricultural system uh, dedicated to things like like animal agriculture? Um, you know, how much should we extract to um, uh, decarbonize the energy sector in, in one way, or should we try and do less extraction to decarbonize in another way? And there are all these sorts of incommensurate um, goals that we might have that we need to kind of balance in this this whole picture. And you're right that what we, we argue for in the book, we argue for um, a fair number of, of sacrifices to be made. Um, for example, uh, biodiversity loss is a major part of the environmental crisis. It's It really is... Um, terrible that we're living in the sixth mass extinction in Earth's history because there, we share this planet with a lot of other creatures. And, and I believe that we should care about that. We can also care from our self-interest because uh, the planet keeps us alive and we should care about keeping it healthy. Um, so, uh, and uh, that kind of puts limits on how much land we can transform because biodiversity loss is driven in large part by ecosystem loss. Um, and ecosystem loss is driven mostly by uh, expanding land for pasture and fodder for for animal agriculture. So giving up that aspect of the food system is something that really can help the biodiversity loss and help climate change um, through uh, rewilding and sequestering carbon that way. But that is something that you that we feel like you can't just ask people to give up without kind of giving this whole picture of of possible futures that we can all debate and choose from together. So that's what Troy was kind of getting at earlier with this idea of of total plans, uh, which is that there are many ways to solve the environmental crisis. We could have, um, we could try and build a bunch of electric cars and go along our lives more or less the way we do now in the global north, but that will have consequences in terms of lots of extraction, uh, you know, uh, labor practices um, elsewhere. It's a high material throughput. Um, it'll maybe not address all the parts of the environmental crisis. We could um, uh, resort to geoengineering, um, all these things, or we could kind of do this more restrictive thing that we talk about. And we kind of go into more detail in the book about how these trade-offs work in practice, but it's the sort of thing that like when you ask people uh, to change their their lives, to change sort of this consumerist bargain where, um, you know, we get, at least in the global North, we kind of get lifestyle or stuff, or at least we used to uh, in exchange for kind of political demobilization, um, if you're kind of moving on from that, there has to be this sort of whole alternative, this whole kind of new vision. Uh, we call them scientific utopias in the book, like utopian futures, like, but that are grounded in sort of material reality and that we can debate and choose between those. I don't know if I explained that very clearly. Um, no, no, that's good. No, you yeah, did. Yeah. I love that phrase. Yeah, it's a fun kind of inversion of Marx. Troy, do you have anything to say? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean... No, Drew did a great job, of course, but uh, I would say I think 
um, the scientific utopianism is an important point because utopia has this reputation of being like a daydream and impossible and impractical. And like the, the philosopher we really rely on in the book, a guy named Otto Neurat, he stresses that utopias are useful because you can think through different possible futures and uh, it's real practical work where you have to look at, you know, what are your resources you have available? How do you distribute those resources? Um, how do they come together? And that takes a lot of skill and a lot of expertise and a lot of collaboration. And I think also with, with Neurath, and we were talking about this before, you know, for him, socialism was uh, the ability to see the whole economy, to visualize the economy, and then to democratically decide what to do with our, our labor, right? What to do with the economy. Um, and... And to not worry about about profit, because uh, things that we want to achieve are not uh, reducible to each other, right? I mean, it's not you can't say you know having you know more schools or more hospitals is uh, better or can be equated in some way to having uh, cleaner air or no extinctions or a stable climate or and so forth. We have to look at them as a totality. And that's the opposite of neoliberalism, where it says, like, you know, you are an autonomous uh, individual. You are on the, on the market. You cannot see the effects of your action. You have no idea if your veganism or your electric car or your, you know, a tiny house or whatever is, has any effect. Uh, you can't see how people should live uh, in total, as a totality, like what is the a proper way to actually have a society that would be ecologically stable? You have no way of knowing any of these things, um, and and we just have to trust this this thing we cannot understand. So I think what, what we're trying to do in the book is really flip this neoliberal logic, and once we do that, we can start imagining things we can do, and also people we can collaborate with, and coalitions we can build, and. Because if you say, okay, you know, what society should we live in? Well, then to figure that out, we need to work with architects and figure out like what does having a low energy, uh, um, you know, quota look like in practice, right? Or talk to planners and be like, what does a city look like that doesn't have so many cars? We have to talk to scientists and mathematicians and you know ecologists and and to build up eco, you know big world models of of the biosphere and, and the economy. Uh, we have to you know build coalition the political coalitions to put these plans into effect you have to work with animal liberationists with feminists with environmentalists with conservationists with socialists and and get people together and be like what kind of society do you want to to live in and what we do in the book is uh we say there are all these different groups they all have dreams for a better world but they have uh their own worldviews, and there's some problems with each of them at some level. And we criticize a lot of different groups and I'm sure lots of them will be annoyed with us. But we also say, if you have an ideology that draws from each of these traditions and is creates coherence between them, then we can imagine a much bigger coalition that could defeat neoliberalism. And that's, and that's what the book is trying to do. And of course, you no know, one could say this is hubristic to have like one little book to change the world. But the point is we think, you know, neoliberals, they decided that their old ideology wasn't working and they lived in a world where their views were a minority and seen as ridiculous. And they just worked very hard and organized and thought through what they wanted to achieve and they, they actually could affect some real changes. And neoliberalism will eventually come to an end 
but it will come to an end when people have better ideas and are better organized and have more powerful coalitions than they do. And we may as well, it may as well be us rather than fascists or who else is uh, the alternative to, to neoliberalism right now. I mean, totally agree. You're, pre you're preaching to the choir here. Um, but I'm going to, uh, like, I, go, I don't know, issue a provocation, I suppose, which is the, I don't even know if this is a provocation, actually, you might completely agree with it, but let's see. Um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenges uh, that lies between us and the construction of this coalition um, is individualism and the cynicism that it breeds. So every time I go and speak to people about climate, the question that always ends up being asked is, what can I do? Um, and there, there is the expectation of a clear answer of, I will give you something to do and you will go away and do that after this talk. And that will be your thing that you've done. And then, you know, you'll be exculpated from guilt or whatever. And my response to this is always, we cannot think about this in terms of what can I do? We have to start building movements and communities and start thinking about what can we do together as a collective and start building these kind of collective imaginaries, which also when you start kind of organizing with other people starts to cut through the cynicism that's created by the realization or, you know, the default assumption that the only thing that you can do or the only things that you can do that matter are things that you can do as an, an individual. And yet as an individual, when you confront these massive systems, you realize you're completely impotent. So that is work in many ways that starts at the level of individuals and of movements. How can we, um, yeah, I guess kind of like combat that and build different imaginations and different, a different sense of what it means to be an individual in society. And that really is like pushing back against 40 years of, of culture. Yeah. I mean, you raised some really important points here. Um, I think there are, it's sort of a, a mini approaches thing. So I know that I, I personally involved with my, my union and with um, activism locally. And, and it's so true that once people sort of get involved with trying to change things, it sort of changes them. Um, so there's sort of this way that um, movements uh, kind of participate in movement kind of, kind of starts changing uh, individual people from this sort of atomized individual of subject of the neoliberal era into uh, the sort of person that can, can work to, to change the world, the sort of person who can be a part of a movement and, and start building up this power. And so that's just the, sort of the hard work of, of organizing. There's also the work of, of imagining, right? Imagining beyond this sort of individual frame. And, and this is sort of what we hope that this book contributes to is, is this sort of opening up, freeing of the imagination to dream up of alternative futures and, and think about different ways out. Um, and to that end, we, we produced a video game that will be up soon. It's on our, our book's website, Half Daughter, um, where you can play as a as a socialist planner who gets to play with all sorts of different uh, ideas and technologies about resolving the climate crisis, things that we don't agree with, things that we agree with. You can try it all. It's a sandbox to imagine the future. Uh, and you can see what happens. There's a, even a climate model in the game. Uh, it's a real scientific climate model that simulates the impact of your decisions uh, on the climate. So there's this imaginative aspect. There's this sort of experiential aspect. Um, there are things that you can do as an individual that that's important too. Like, you know, changing diet is, is one example that we, we point to, but it's, you're right that it's, it's sort of this movement building thing. So there's, um, I don't know if I have a coherent answer here, but it's, it's sort of like a imagination <laughs> plus doing a lot of work plus um being optimistic and, and energetic and not stopping i don't know it's hard you keep following very coherent answers with the statement i don't know if i have a coherent answer so i'm not sure what that's about, oh thank you you have a coherent answer from my perspective troy uh, yeah this is a 
big problem, right? I mean, I think, well, what, what did we, I mean, what can someone do? And you're exactly right that an individual can't really do anything that matters. I mean, obviously, this is a huge problem. There's 8 billion of us. Uh, the whole world. Uh, this problem has been going on for decades, if not centuries. Uh, it, it's, it's a very hard problem, for sure. I can only say what you know, Drew and I did and found useful. And that really was, first of all, trying to understand how we got into this mess. Uh, and that meant reading up on... on you know, scientific papers, reading environmental history, reading about the history of neoliberalism, um, trying to understand what the future will probably look like, which, yeah, had to do with reading up on geoengineering and, and uh, reading IPCC reports. And I think it, it's useful to really educate yourself and anyone can do that. Again, I'm not a scientist. Uh, Drew's a scientist. But anyone, you know, people can read scientific papers. I think people think that it's impossible. People can read monographs. People can read you know, neoliberal economics. They, they actually don't use models and things like that. They're actually pretty easy to read. So I think it's useful to have that foundation just for yourself to understand why we are in such trouble right now. And then I think it comes down to also connecting with, with people who, who also care and begin to have collaborations. So I think when, you know, if you're someone who cares about animal rights, uh, you should talk to other people about that. And I think if you, you know, as you know, Drew's a scientist, you know, I think it'd be great to have scientists talk to scientists and say, you know, we all know we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, we need to think beyond capitalism. There's, there's reasons why capitalism, you know, can't fix this problem and uh, to really raise consciousness. And I think, and then you begin to collaborate. I mean, we work with like an architect and write for architectural journals and try to say, I know architects, how can you design homes and buildings and all that well, that can fit into the, like a broader, um, you know, vision of, of what kind of society we need to achieve. I mean, there's lots to do at some level to imagining new futures it will take a lot of work i mean we're working with video game designers and we have to hire many researchers and and we're constantly thinking like what what could that society look like and in the book you know the book does two things i have to say right it has our vision of what we think society should look like which is uh, it should strive for economic equality it should strive for democracy it should try to avoid extinctions and care about animal rights and all that but someone might disagree with us and they could say actually i'm willing to risk you know geoengineering and i want to have my mansion and all that but we want you to think think your, about yourself and how you live and what kind of society you want to live in and imagine it on a, a broader scale right and think about whether that makes sense or not and come up with your own total solutions to these problems, right? Instead of just thinking like one you know, silver bullet can solve this one problem. So I think, um, yes, educating yourself and then imagining a new future and and collaborating with others. And that's, that's a good start. And on that note, we have reached the end of our episode, but not obviously the end of the struggle. So please do make sure you check out um, the book Half Earth Socialism there will be a link in the description of this episode Drew and Troy thank you so much for joining me thank today. you for having us